The Air by Vita Sackville West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story two, the Christmas party. One. The street door opened straight into the shop. The shop went back a long way and was very dark and crowded with objects. Everything seemed to have something else superimposed upon it, either set down or hanging. Thus against the walls dangled bunches of masks, like bunches of bananas, weapons of all kinds, shields and breastplates, swags of tinsel jewellery, wigs. Upon the tops of the cupboards stood ewers, goblets, candelabra, all in sham gold plate, and the counters themselves were strewn with miscellany of smaller theatrical necessities. It was only little by little that the glance, growing accustomed to the obscurity of the shop, began to disentangle object from object in this assortment. Everything was very dusty, with the exception of the shields and stray pieces of armour, which were brightly furbished and detached themselves like mirrors in their places on the walls, giving a distorted reflection in miniature of the recesses of the shop. There were stuffed animals, particularly dusty, with glass eyes and red open mouths showing two rows of teeth. There were grotesque cardboard heads, four times life-size, for giants. There was the figure of a knight in a complete suit of armour, with a faded blue cloak embroidered with the lilies of France hanging from his shoulders, and a closed helmet from which sprang a tuft of plumes that had once been white, but that were now grey with dust and age. This knight stood on the lowest step of the staircase that started in the middle of the shop and led to the upper floors of the house. A door across the top of the flight shut off the secrets of the upper story from the observation of customers in the shop on the ground floor. On the upper floors the house was old and rambling. It straggled up and down on different levels, along dark passages and into irregular little rooms, badly lit by small windows, and, like the shop, encumbered with objects not only by the furniture, which was much too bulky for the size of the rooms, but also by properties which belonged to the shop, and which at various times had been huddled upstairs in the course of a clearance below. There were rows of dresses hanging on hooks, halberts and muskets propped up in the corners, albums of photographs for reference lying on the tables, pairs of boots and buskins thrust away behind the curtains and under the valances. You felt convinced that every drawer was packed, so that you could only just be induced to shut, and that if you opened the door of a cupboard, a crowd of imprisoned articles would come tumbling out helter-skelter. Everything was old and fusty, tawdry, and pretentious under its grime. Outside, the snow had gathered in tiny drifts along the lead-work of the latticed windows, making the rooms darker than they already were and had heaped itself against the panes two or three inches above the window-sills. In the mornings the frost left fern-frond patterns on the panes, but although it was thus rendered almost impossible to see out, the bright frost and snow were a not unpleasant relief, for they were something clean and fresh, something of quite recent arrival and of certain departure, in contrast to the contents of the house, which had lain there accumulating for so many years, and which offered no promise of a disturbing hand in the years to come. 2. Over the shop door, on to the street, 
Gold letters on a black background said, Lydia Prothero, theatrical costumier and wig-maker. Lydia was not the name by which the proprietress of the shop had been baptized, neither was Prothero the name of her parents. Her husband's name it could not be, for she had never had a husband. What her real name was she had long since preferred to forget, and it was not difficult to do so, for as Lydia Prothero she had made her fame, and in the town where she had come as a stranger there was no one to know her as anything else. The fame and the business she had built up together, amorously, jealously. It had taken her forty years. Somewhere back in the eighties she saw herself, young, determined, deaf to the outcry of her family, a young woman in a bombazine gown, with smooth bands of hair like Christina Rossetti, and arms folded, each hand clasping the opposite elbow. She saw herself thus, standing up, surveying the circle of her relations as they expostulated around her. They were outraged, they were aggrieved, they were respectable people who naturally disapproved of the stage. And here was Lydia, only to them she had not been Lydia, but Alice, announcing her intention of setting up a business which would engage her inevitably in theatrical circles. That a young woman should think of setting up business on her own account was bad enough, but such a business was an affront beyond discussion. She would bring shame upon them. Here the personality of Lydia Prothero first brilliantly germinated in Alice's mind. They threw up their hands. Alice, who might enjoy all the advantages of a gentlewoman. Alice, who might reasonably have looked for a husband, a home, a family of her own. Alice, who up to the age of twenty-one had given them scarcely any anxiety, who had been so very genteel, all things considered, in spite of a certain element of puckishness in her, which had peeped out so very rarely, a certain disrespect of their ideals, a mere trifle, a mere indication, had they but the wit to read of what was brewing beneath. And what did she reply to their remonstrance? In what phrase, maddening because irrefutable, did she finally take refuge, that she was of age? It was true. She was twenty-one, and she had a thousand pounds left her by her grandfather. She could snap her fingers at them all if she chose. She did not literally snap her fingers. She was gentle and regretful. She said she did not wish to cut herself adrift from her family, and saw no reason why they should cut themselves adrift from her. She would not bring their name into disrepute. She would trade under another name. She would cease to be Alice Jennings, she would become Lydia Prothero. Secretly she was elated to escape from a name of whose homeliness she had always been ashamed, but this she was careful not to betray to her family. To her family she made the announcement with an air of sacrifice. Since they were humiliated by her, and by the trade she had chosen, she would go away. She would conceal her identity in a distant town. No. She shook her smooth head in answer to their protestations. What she had declared she would carry out. They should never say they had cause to blush whenever they opened a theatre programme. Wigs by Jennings. That should not offend their eyes. Wigs by Prothero. And they could sit snugly in their stalls, being Jennings, looking Jennings. Connected with the stage in any way? Oh, dear, no. Let them only think kindly of her in her lonely and distant yes, distant, 
Struggles. No doubt Miss Prothero would find it hard at first, unfriended and unsupported, but armed with her thousand pounds she would survive the first reverses, and adversity was good for the character. Indeed, as she talked, always gentle and regretful, but perfectly obdurate, she felt her character stiffening under the test of this first adversity. The Presbyterian that was in her, as it was in all her relatives, welcomed in its austere and cheerless fashion this trial that made a demand upon her endurance. She enjoyed the self-satisfaction of the martyr, and yet, secretly, all the while, a little voice jibed at her, hypocrite. She knew her hypocrisy because, in spite of her affectation of martyrdom, she was rejoicing in her new isolation. She knew that she would embark on her adventure with a greater gusto, since she was not to embark on it with the approval of her family. It was all very well for her to appeal to their sympathy with poor Miss Prothero, unfriended and unsupported. The phrase sounded well, but the truth was that she wanted neither their friendship nor their support. "'I want to get away from all this,' she cried suddenly and despairingly. She wanted independence. She wanted the fight. She would have been defrauded of both by the lap of a comfortable middle-class family spread out behind her to receive her if she fell. Backed up by her family, she would have felt herself backed up by the whole of the English middle-class, cushioned, solid in the consciousness of its homogeneity and resources, an enormous family of Jennings, swarming in every town and with its place of assembly in every town hall inimical to the exotic, mistrustful of the new, tenacious of the conventions that were as cement to its masonry, a class sagacious and shrewd, nicely knowing safety from danger, and knowing, above all, its own mind, since nothing was ever admitted to that mind to which it could not immediately affix a label. This was the class to whose protection Alice Jennings had the birthright now rejected by Lydia Prothero. She marvelled how she could have endured it for so many years. She made a gesture as she finally rejected it. The hands that had been clasping the elbows were unloosed, and the right hand tossed up in a gesture definitely histrionic, as one who tosses a feather to the wind. Her family had almost groaned when they saw it, for they recognised it as a defiance, a symbol and an enemy. She stood there, in their midst, a slim revolutionary, not visibly tremulous, and although her hair still lay in those sleek bands plastered down on her forehead, they felt that the moment was near at hand when they would cease to be sleek and would become rumpled, even curly, even puffed out, and that the snuff-coloured bombazine of her gown would become metamorphosed into some gaudy intolerable fustian. They looked at her as though they were looking their last. They uttered a preliminary caution. She smiled. Seeing her smile, they ceased the expostulations which had been wrung from them in their first dismay. They gathered themselves up in dignity and sorrow. They said that since nothing would turn her from this reckless, this unbecoming, this, in short, this idea, and that since she was of age, as she had not scrupled to remind them, she must, they supposed, be allowed to follow her own course but let her not expect to return to them when the consequences of her folly were heavy upon her. Let her not, it was her father who enunciated this figure of speech, 
shaking his finger solemnly at her, let her not hope to exchange for the glare of the lamplight the oil-lamp of the warm parlour of home. Once an outcast, she should remain an outcast for ever. She had a sudden attack of panic as these impressive words boomed upon her ears. She saw herself alone in a deserted theatre, the Holland covers over the stalls, the lights turned out, and the great pit of the stage yawning at her in front of the gaunt skeleton of the scenery. And simultaneously she saw the circle of her family, who were, after all, familiar, even if not particularly enlivening, seated at their snug evening tasks in the glow of that oil-lamp of which her father had reminded her. She came near to weakening. She knew that if she held out her hands to them, even now, they would receive her again into their bosom, but how they would cackle over her! They would pat her kindly, they would talk of her having come to her senses, of being once more their little Alice, and this her pride would not endure. She discovered that she could tolerate patronage even less than security, and for the rest of her days, if she capitulated now, she would be at the mercy of her family. She would be among them on sufferance, sooner any loneliness, any quandary, sooner even starvation, than shelter on such terms. Inclining her head, she accepted her ostracism without a protest. As soon as she had accepted it, as soon, that is, as the worst had been definitely spoken, and she had definitely survived it, she felt the sense of her liberty flooding over her. Her very name dropped from her like a piece of old skin. She became that unique being, the person who has no relations. Alice Jennings had had relations. Lydia Prothero had none. Lydia Prothero had never even had a mother. Independence could scarcely go further. She swept one last slow look around their circle, and passed out of the room. End of Story 2 Sections 1 and 2